So James chapter 5, let's read verses 13 through 18. It says, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So this passage, I just picked one, but it's one among many that tells us to pray for one another. And it's also a great passage because it answers some of our questions about praying. For example, uh, when, when should we pray? When should we pray? Well, according to this passage, when we're in trouble, when we're happy, when we're sick, when we need to confess our sins, and even when we need rain. And so we're given, first of all, a picture here of a continuous relationship, a continuous conversation that we have with God as we tell Him about what's happening in our lives, our joys, our hardships, our trials. And then when do we pray? Or actually, to answer that question, as you look at the passage, really all the time and at all kinds of times, happy, sad, and so forth. Um, We also get a good indicator of who should pray. After all, who should pray? The pastor? The church leader? Well, sure, but the word here says that a person in trouble should pray. A person who's happy should sing songs of praise, which is merely another way of praying. Who else should pray as you look at that passage? Well, the person who's sick, and and not only the person who's sick, but the healthy person praying for the sick. And so we're given an example of the elders anointing someone with oil and praying. And it's not clear whether the oil has healing properties in itself or if it's just a symbolic outward sign of what uh, will happen inwardly. We don't know that for sure, but it's clear that this prayer is offered in faith in the name of the Lord. Who else should pray? Well, from the passage, the person who has sinned. And so I think that covers everyone in the room here this morning. Uh, We're instructed to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. Because just as our bodies often need physical healing, our spiritual bodies need healing as well. And so we're instructed here to pray both of those things, for both of those things, with one another. Also, a righteous man is to pray because his prayers are powerful and effective. So to summarize the answer to that question, who should pray from this passage? Anyone who's in trouble, anyone who's happy, anyone who's sick, those who are elders or righteous, and those who have sinned. And so in other words, everybody. So that covers the who, everybody, and the when at all times. But what I want to talk about in the rest of our time together this morning is the why. Why is it hard for us to pray for one another, and why should we? 
Well, one reason to pray for one another in these verses is that praying for one another helps individuals and entire communities, like this community, to trust in God's action. So let's flesh that out in the first few verses and see what that looks like. Um, For example, uh, verse 13, let's dig into the meaning of the words trouble and happy. The NIV translates, first of all, is any one of you in trouble? So as you read that, I'm not sure where your mind goes, but I suddenly picture uh, a kid who got busted with her hand in the cookie jar. Or perhaps uh, a guy who's been audited by the IRS when he's cheating on his taxes. But actually the situation here is not rule-breaking or stirring up trouble, neither of those. I think a better translation would be the word suffering. And so James seems to be referring broadly to us enduring through hardship. And the summons here is for the suffering person in faith to ask God to act. And so the person who suffers is called to lean into God's action, to trust that God will help. And so the prayer of the suffering person is rooted in God's action. And that follows suit. The word happy here in verse 13 uh, can be similarly misleading. When you think of happy, you know, perhaps you think of someone chasing butterflies around or maybe um, someone on a roller coaster at Disneyland enjoying it. But that's not what's going on here. A better translation, I believe, might be encouraged. Uh, The Greek word here is also used in the book of Acts to describe Paul when he's exhorting the sailors who've been shipwrecked. Keep up your courage, Paul says to them. Same idea is true here. Has anyone among you been encouraged? Let that person sing songs of praise to God. And so the exhortation here is to take courage or to take heart. And that only makes sense when you have a backdrop of suffering or trials or hardship. And so as you look at verse 13, it's not a contrast between suffering and the good life. Instead, it's a picture of a community that's undergoing persecution or suffering or trials. And among that group, there are some who are struggling And there are others who have taken courage. And the encouragement is for both of those groups to pray. Those who are struggling should ask for God's help. And those who have taken courage are called to thank God for the strength that He's given them to carry on. So, it's basically giving credit to God for all of His work. In both instances, the people, uh, the prayers of the people in the community reveal to us that they are relying upon God's action. We see the same thing playing out in verse 14. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him. And the prayers of the elders we see are offered in faith, trusting that it is God who acts. It's God who raises up. And so the very act of praying for one another is a way for us to entrust one another to God and depend on God's action to bring about courage or perseverance or healing, depending on what we're praying for. And so praying for one another centers us as God's people in God's actions. And it cultivates in us a dependence on God. So why is praying for one another such a challenging thing for us to do? I'd like to kind of take a crack at that question this morning. Why is it so hard for us to do that? 
Well, I believe that praying for one another requires a vulnerability on our part. And we're not naturally inclined to do that. Uh, The person who is suffering has to acknowledge it. And so we feel like it's an admission of our weakness. And sometimes it actually is. And the person who thanks God for the courage to endure is admitting that they're not actually strong enough to have endured without God's help. And so it's an admission on our part of us not being good enough or not being strong enough. You know, physically, a person who's sick and asks for prayer, they're reaching out for help. They're acknowledging that their body is failing. And it's the same way with us spiritually, that we acknowledge or we have to acknowledge when other people are praying for us that spiritually we're broken or that spiritually we're, we're weak. It's an admission of our frailty. And, and I'm not sure about you, but I, I, don't, I don't like admitting my frailty. I don't like admitting my weakness. And praying for one another forces us to do that. And and ultimately, it forces us to depend on God. And so as a strong, self-sufficient people, um, I think relying on God and being vulnerable is incredibly hard for many of us to do. But I want to submit to you this morning that it is essential toward us building the kind of community that God has designed for us. Um, Because just like dependence on God fosters Christ-likeness, so does does vulnerability. And and so our passage further reveals this need for vulnerability by talking about confessing our sins to one another. Did you get that? Confessing our sins to one another. Does that kind of make you uncomfortable? As you think about doing that, that's okay. I, I understand that. I, I feel uncomfortable with it as well. And, and if I'm totally honest, that's terrifying to admit my sin to you. Uh, and I think that's because confession forces us to acknowledge, it forces me to acknowledge that I'm not good enough, that I have messed up. And even deeper than that, that I am messed up. I don't want to do that. In, in this world that we live in that values achievement and excellence and perfection, confession reveals all the ways that we fall short of those ideals. And so we live in a world that values beauty, and yet confession reveals our ugliness. And so we don't want to do that. No wonder it's terrifying, because it touches our deepest fears as well. If I reveal this sin or this darkness in me, will I be rejected? Will I be ostracized? Will people see the truth about who I really am and not want anything to do with me? And so, as a result, you and I hide behind our masks of strength and excellence and competence, trying desperately to cover over the depths of our weakness and our failure. We do it. I'd like you to imagine uh, that you're driving in a car with a group of your friends and you're going to... Lincoln or maybe Omaha to a concert and uh, along the way you notice that you have a tire on your vehicle that's going flat and you start to kind of feel that as you're going down the road. Now you could forge on just kind of ignore that sensation you're feeling and you could hope to get to the concert on time or you could stop 
and acknowledge that we have a problem here and then take out the spare tire, fix it. Um, but if you do that, you might be late. You might not make it on time. So you, you could just pretend, hey, there's nothing wrong here. We'll be fine. We'll make it. We'll, we'll deal with it later, right? Kind of a funny analogy, but I think sin is a lot like that flat tire because if it goes unaddressed, it won't be fixed. And if it goes unaddressed... Not only does it create a falsehood in the community, but it can also be damaging, right? If you ignore your flat tire for too long, it's not only the tire that's going to be the worst for the wear, that's going to affect the whole vehicle. It's the same way in our community of faith. Last week I mentioned uh, 12-step programs such as AA and how they seem to understand our need for honesty and being vulnerable in our relationships. And I think that's why in these types of groups, if you've ever attended or observed them or been a part of them, uh, the members will typically introduce their name along with uh, their sin. They'll say, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm an addict, or I'm an alcoholic, and so on. They just name it straight up. And then the community there will typically celebrate that or applaud that or encourage that because they know that that's a key step, that naming uh, the weakness or the problem is a key step towards restoration. And in those groups, typically judgment is reserved for God because everyone is fighting the same battle together. And so this morning, uh, let me be clear, church, we are all fighting the same battle. Sure, it looks different for each of us. Um, Some of us have used power to gain advantage. Some of us are perfectionists who hide behind our work. Some of us have battles with sexual sin. Some of us lie about who we really are to avoid being rejected. Some of us cheat. Some of us us steal. But you know what? We're all fighting the same battle of being weak and sinful people who fail, and we're afraid to admit it. And for some reason, we think that honesty in the church is optional, or admitting our failure is optional. And so... We pretend to be okay or perfect. But Jesus makes, this, makes it clear that in his community, honesty isn't optional. In fact, it's the only way towards true healing. Again, I understand. Uh, talking about our sin, the consequences of our sin, very difficult to talk about. To own your own weakness or darkness can be deeply embarrassing. Sin's hard to talk about because it can be hurtful. And it can be damaging. But Paul writes in Romans that the consequences of sin, and some of you know this verse, the wages of sin is what? Death. And so our sin leads to death. And I think we see that around us and in us. We experience the ways that our own sin or the wrong choices of others or maybe the injustice of our world damages our relationships. It damages our physical and emotional health. And so we know that sin is bad, and yet it's very hard for us to own our own sin. Why would we ever want to own or subject ourselves to potential rejection or humiliation by naming it, by putting it out there? But I believe the answer is staring at us this morning in verse 16. It says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed. 
so that you may be healed. And so the first reason to name our sin is because confession leads to healing. It's not for the sake of submitting to judgment. And and as someone who's prone to judge others, let me remind myself and let let me remind all of us that, that judgment ultimately is not our job. Judgment ultimately belongs to God. Sin certainly bears consequences, yes, and there's a place for naming that in others. And those consequences can be painful, but but consequences and judgment are not the same thing. And so may God have mercy on us if we respond in judgment to the confession of another person, because confession is for the sake of restoration. In the act of confessing to one another and then praying for one another, we are opened up to the work of the Holy Spirit. Jerry Sitzer writes about this. He says that confession exposes our sin and brokenness, and prayer gives us access to the healing power of God. And then I love this part. Sitzer says, This work of healing extends beyond the individual to the whole community. And so as individuals experience wholeness, so do communities. And so that's what we're after here in this community, that as individuals, as we bring ourselves honestly before God, that he would make us whole and that that would affect our communities and that we could do that together if appropriate. In the early church, if you study history, confession of sin was a big part of their experience. Sins were often acknowledged publicly at the initiative of the individual. And I believe that's because the early Christians believed that all sin, even private individual sin, affected the whole community. But public confession was always, always for the sake of healing and for the eventual restoration of the sinner into the life of the community. And so confession had behind it a desire for reconciliation and a lasting change of heart. And so I'm wondering if if in the church today, in our church and in other churches, if there could be this kind of safety again, where people truly love each other, where they're truly honest with each other, that you would feel so safe in this community that you could do that. You could be who you are. And people would love you in response to that because that's God's community. That's what we're after. As we grapple with this whole idea of public confession, you might be thinking, oh, really? I don't know if that's always appropriate. That's true. It's important to recognize that there are limits to it. I think we need to be careful about the details we share and the people with whom we share it. Not everything should be said. Not everyone should be told. But if the goal of confession is healing, that whole process of confession is centered on that goal. And so we should avoid unnecessary details that might get in the way of that process. My whole point with all of that is that confession is for the sake of healing. And so to do it in a way that leads to healing. Sitzer continues and he writes that confession may be the single most important practice for the church to become a community of authentic love and humility. If you think about it, confession levels the playing field in the church, exposing both the weak and the strong to be sinners in need of God's grace. And so it's in this mutual embrace of weakness and humility that we're formed 
into individuals and into a church that more authentically reflects Christ. So here, here's the catch, I think, with us, and maybe a reason why we've lost this art of confession. We, we think about Jesus, and we see this Savior as the King who conquered the powers of sin and death. And that's accurate. He is a hero. And we want to be like that. And I, I want to be like that. I want to be a hero. That's good. But I think we often focus on that when we think of growing into Christ-likeness. But we forget the humiliation that Christ endured on the cross. We forget that He suffered. We forget that He allowed Himself to be vulnerable, that He was exposed for the entire world to see. Wow, what vulnerability. I'm not even sure we can grasp the depths of humility that He embraced by giving up His glory and wrapping Himself in our flesh and dying for us. And so for you and I, we aren't called to be heroes. Perhaps there are times when we can be heroic, and I'm more than glad to to encourage that. But we are called to identify with Christ's suffering, to acknowledge our utter weakness, which is the only thing that allows us to fully rely on God's strength anyway. And so praying for one another and confessing our sin to one another as terrifying as that might be or can be, it enables us to depend on God's strength and to experience true humility. And it's in that difficult, vulnerable act of revealing our weakness by praying with and for one another that He forms us into God's people and into this community that demonstrates these Christ-like virtues of humility and dependence on God. So as I stand before you, I can't claim to have this mastered in my own life, but I see it in Jesus' life. And so I want to pursue it. And I believe that God is calling us to a different kind of strength than how we usually pursue it, which is pursuing it alone because we're tough enough and strong enough. But God, I believe, is calling us to a different kind of strength. And it's a strength that's strong enough to be honest in our weakness and courageous enough to let others see our fear, and to be vulnerable enough to admit that we aren't good enough, and that we would be gracious enough to accept one another in our weakness, and to pray fervently for one another. Why? Why should we do that? Well, as James describes here for us, so that we might experience help, healing, forgiveness, and restoration. And ultimately, so that people will see Christ in us.